This last year, I finished this book here. It's 600-some uh, pages, and it's by Eric Metaxas. It's a biography of Bonhoeffer. It's Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. And uh, Pastor Jeff got wind of it, that I had finished the book, and he said, Steve, will you preach a biographical, bi- biographical I can't even say it, sermon? And uh, I've never done that before, and i never heard one like that before. And then I heard that John Piper does this about every year on some famous theologian, and so I listened to one of his, and so this is a different kind of sermon. It's really a testimony and a tribute to God's work in a man's life. But his life deeply affected mine. So it's a personal testimony as well. We could call this my personal sermon application from the last two sermons that Randy and Mike preached this last two weeks. No notes, just listen. I've manuscript the sermon, I won't give it to you (laughs) right yet. I hope to post it online in in a week or so. I need to put some footnotes and do some credits. Let's pray. Father, I want nothing less than to honor you this morning for Christ's work in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. But I want to honor you the most, because you're the one who does things in our lives by your grace that we can't. I want to be true to you. I want it to be true to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I want to be true to the work you have done in his life and and in mine. And my prayer, Lord, is that all of us will be inspired to know more, to hear better, to understand more fully, and more radically follow Christ. And Father, I know there may be some here who don't yet follow him. And today, Lord, by your grace, will you open their eyes to what Jesus is saying. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work and what you will do today. In Jesus' name, amen. I've titled this... Discipleship and Dietrich, Radical Realities from Christ, and today the sermon is personal. I want to talk about what has meant most to me about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, how he helped me so much, but mostly before I came to know Christ. I grew up in the midst of truth, the scriptures, but in time rejected the idea that anyone could really have a real supernatural relationship with him. As I grew up, I was doing all of the things many Christians do. I acted and looked like a Christian. But my rejection of the possibility of knowing Christ led me to pursue the happiness I found in sin, and I found a lot of happiness in it. You need to know that I grew up with 17 years of solid biblical instruction from my home, my school, and my church. As a senior in high school, a Christian high school, I was introduced to Bonhoeffer when I was assigned to read his most famous book, this very copy right here, it's pretty old by now, The Cost of Discipleship. And I had to do it to pass a test. (laughs) So I I was rereading it very carefully this year, and I found out there were cryptic notes in here that obviously I was just trying to answer the the questions.
From a young age, my Christian training had focused on giving the right answers and doing the right things. And I thought that salvation was basically self-appropriated, let me explain. It was something I had to work on that basically I had to initiate. Believe in Christ, say the prayer, receive the grace, bingo, you're saved. I had actually prayed the prayer many times and been baptized, but I found my version of Christianity as one of following the great law imposer, and his agents were my parents, my teachers, and my pastors. (laughs) So today I want to start with two quotes from Bonhoeffer that shocked me at the age of 16. I'll also be sharing about the life from this big bio by Metaxas, and Metaxas is actually, I think, claim to fame is the fact that he helped write Veggie Tales. <laughs> so now maybe you'll read it. <laughs> but these two quotes, and these are things that stunned me. And mostly what I want to share this morning is how Bonhoeffer, through his theological writings, helped me to face the realities that are in Jesus Christ. Cheap grace is a means, is grace as a means. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It is an intellectual assent to that idea and is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission from sins. I knew all about grace. I thought I just applied it to myself. Costly grace is the living word of God. It confronts us and asks us to follow Jesus. It comes to the broken spirit and the contrite of heart. It compels us to submit to the yoke of Christ. And the question plagued me. Can someone really have this supernatural, personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Jesus describes this relationship in John 10, 27 like this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Huge theological realities. And I began to wonder if we might, if we might have to want a relationship with Christ more than his salvation. You see, that's what Jesus was happening here in John 10, as it's recorded there. I know now... This is what the religious Jews didn't want to accept. They wanted salvation and restoration of the Jewish kingdom, but they did not want a relationship with Jesus, who claimed to be God's son. So here in John 10, Jesus first gives us a description of what a relationship with him is like. One, he knows us. Two, we understand that he is the shepherd, the God incarnate. We know who we are, the sheep, the ones who have fallen into sin. And he calls us, and we hear, and we follow. And then Christ describes his salvation. It's like this. He gives it. It's his gift. It's eternal life. It's his eternal life. And it's secure in him. Huge theological realities. For the Jews and for us, and for me, the issue is, is Jesus Christ really God. If he is, we will have to believe him and follow what he says or face eternal hell, according to his words. 
But to risk faith in Christ is to actually risk having to obey him, to follow him. If he is really God, that's what a relationship means. With Bonhoeffer's help at 16, I comprehended this clearly for the first time in my life, and I walked away. I walked away. Hell seemed like a long ways off. Imagine Jesus standing in front of you in line at Costco. (laughs) I like to think of these things. And I, I, I don't know, you don't know it's him. He turns around and he launches into an extended conversation explaining who he is and what his work is. And then he says, follow me. This is like what he did to the disciples. He walked into their Costco and he said, follow me. Bonhoeffer describes the response of the one who really wants to follow Christ. The call goes forth and it is once followed by a response of obedience. The response of the disciple is an act of obedience, not a mere confession of faith. How can the call immediately evoke obedience? For the simple reason, it is Jesus Christ himself. Now, before we go farther, I want to just tell you a little bit about Bonhoeffer. He was born in Berlin to a wealthy family in 1906. And by the age of 14, he was an accomplished pianist. He was extremely gifted. But to his parents' great dismay, he declares, I'm going to become a theologian. His brothers teased him mercifully and said, you know, you're going to go be part of that worthless church. And he says, if the church is worthless, then I shall reform it. Wow. In the 1900s, the theological center of the world was Germany. And the German Lutheran church, started by Luther in 1509, had grown into this powerhouse with Karl Barth and other prominent theologians. And at the same time, Germany was now staggering from the loss of World War I. The Versailles Treaty was brutal. And within this environment, Hitler rises to power in 33. And immediately the German church comes under tremendous pressure to nationalize under his government. It did, and the results were disastrous. So within this context, Dietrich is born and raised. And he was trained in the best Berlin seminary of the time. And in 1927, at the age of 21, he published his doctoral dissertation, Sanctorium Communio. It was about the life of the church. Karl Barth called it a masterpiece. He went on to pastoral internships and ministry and postgraduate studies, traveling to England, to America twice, and then back to Germany. The cost of discipleship, this is my original copy, is a compilation of the sermons he preached over a span of three years from his studies on the Sermon on the Mount. In 1936, at the age of 30, Bonhoeffer said this to his good friend Elizabeth Zinn, that through these studies, God had brought him for the first time into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can know all about God and not know him. And his friends observed an amazing change. He was no longer the strict theologian of the earlier years. Bonhoeffer tells us that he wrote the cost of discipleship to address the quest for him who is the sole object of it all, Jesus Christ himself. 
I was surprised this last year when I reread the book more carefully than ever after reading the bio <laughs> to see phrases which have echoed in my mind for 45 years. I've read a lot of theologians in my life, and I'm never quite sure whose thoughts are bouncing around in my mind anymore. <laughs> but Bonhoeffer's were implanted before I knew Christ. And let me just give you a few of those. Christianity means following Christ. It is not a religion. That's a Bonhoeffer quote. Where Jesus calls, he bridges the widest gulf. This call, this grace is irresistible. Well, four years later, I was 21. Actually, five years later, and God broke my will, which I consider a gift of his grace, And the Holy Spirit helped me to hear Christ's call like I'd never heard it before. As some of you know, I was standing on the 100-foot-high ocean cliffs of Montana de Oro State Park in in Central California. I was all alone, except my drug buddy was off somewhere else. And I was all alone standing on these cliffs. And I was literally one step from ending my life in despair over the depth of my sins and under demonic attack. I knew there was no life after death for me, but only judgment in hell if Jesus Christ really was God. But on those cliffs, Christ's words were brought to my mind from the scriptures I had memorized in my youth, and I saw visions of what God's words describe. I won't go into those. But at that point, I was once again confronted with the fact that a relationship with Christ literally meant that I was going to have to trust and follow God's, Christ's, spoken words to me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. This truth had taken root in my mind when I read Bonhoeffer at 16, and now I simply prayed, God, if you're real, help me to believe. How do you describe this? Hoping you can have a relationship with God you can't see, who speaks through his written word, I believe he uses the Holy Spirit to enliven it to us, to make us hear it. For me, it was like thinking about jumping off the high dive in the deep end of the pool when you're five. You can't comprehend jumping off it as you walk into the shallow end with your little floaties on for the first time for your first swimming lesson. You look down there and you see this looming high dive. And you can't comprehend doing it. I don't have the, you don't have the faith to do it. I didn't. You need someone else to help you. Here's a quote from Bonhoeffer. Discipleship is not limited to what you can comprehend. It must transcend comprehension. Plunge into the deep waters beyond your comprehension. And I, Christ, will help you comprehend even as I do. He's speaking as if Christ were speaking. My comprehension transcends yours. Behold, that is the way of the cross. You cannot find it. So you must let me lead you as though you were a blind man. Actually, that's a quote from Martin Luther that Dietrich loved. And then we kind of wonder, well, is there really separation between faith and following Christ? As a kid, I eventually went off the high board, and I remember I had been brought 
I had been up a, a bunch of times, and I had always climbed down. Now, to pass a swimming lesson, I had to jump off it. And I think my instructor was getting frustrated with me. And one day, he gets out this long pole, and I could tell he could reach the impact zone where my death would occur. <laughs> and he said, Steve, get up there and look at me. Don't look at the water. Listen to me and swim right after you hit the water. Jump. At this point, I've done nothing but climb up. Finally, I look at him, I follow his words, and I jump, leaving my former life behind. <laughs> I did not know if I would be dead or alive, but if I'm alive, I will be swimming as hard and as fast as I can to follow him because there's a big, scary drain down there in the deep end. Here's a quote from Bonhoeffer. This situation is not the consequence of our obedience, but the consequence of Jesus who commands obedience. Unless we're prepared to enter into that kind of situation, our faith will be unreal and we deceive ourselves. Unbelief thrives on cheap grace, for it is determined to persist in disobedience. Unbelief is the first and the worst form of disobedience. the first form of not following Christ's call. And now after 46 years, having pondered how Bonhoeffer has been most helpful to me, I've come to realize that when I boil it all down, what he helped me to profoundly understand and to grasp that true realities only come from Christ. I had plunged into unreality in my sin. I was deluded. When Christ speaks, it's real. What are these two realities? One, the reality of the incarnate Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Jesus is real. He is the Christ. And the reality that we can actually hear his words and comprehend them as he speaks them to us. These two things permeate Bonhoeffer's life and writings. And I have found that as I have read more of him since I've been saved, that he's so different than contemporary liberal theologians or postmodern emergent writers, and I tend to read a lot just to see where people are being deluded, that he's simply in another world, and one where I'm completely at home and where I find my heart and mind made alive and perceptive and responsive and earnest and hopeful and amazed and passionate to experientially know Christ more and more, to hear his words, to follow him, even as I read Dietrich now. And ever since I was forced to read him at 16, I have never been the same. I did not become saved at 16, but I have never been the same. But I do not see myself as an imitator of Bonhoeffer. He's an intellectual giant in the land, and his abilities to think and feel are off the charts We live in a world of immense deception, incredible deceit, filled with lies. But we need to temper our outrage as believers. Because our own sin and our own fallen flesh at times deceive us. Without Christ, we're as deluded. We're deluded and we think we're living in reality when in fact... We're more deluded than the copper tops in the matrix because our delusion is on the spiritual level. 
Our delusions are on the spiritual level. Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly points this out when he was on earth. Spiritual delusion will eternally kill you. The call of Christ teaches us that our relation to the world has been but an illusion, says Bonhoeffer. Since the coming of Christ, his followers have had no more immediate realities of their own. Between father, son, husband, wife, the individual, and the nation stands Christ the mediator. We cannot establish direct contact outside of ourselves except through him, through his word, and through our following of him. To think otherwise is to deceive ourselves. This year, I've asked myself this question. You know, why do I find Bonhoeffer so helpful? Because I have read more of him since I was saved. Why has he been so helpful when he was not reformed in his doctrine? He did not believe in the complete inerrancy of the word, as neither did Bart or C.S. Lewis. And I find myself disagreeing on some very important matters. He believes saving faith can be imputed to infants through baptism. He believed the Lord's Supper has the real presence of Christ in it. He wrote that Christ has left a residue of suffering for the church to fulfill, implying that man's suffering may be partially redemptive for his own salvation. And I disagree on every account. But there's an ironic effect still when I read him. How has he continued to help me over time, when I've concluded he was so wrong on some very important things. Why don't I put him in the same category as the so-called emergent writers who seem to be driven by the pursuit of relevance? Here's why Bonhoeffer held to the idea that felt relevance doesn't define truth, but truth defines relevance. Where the question of relevance becomes the theme of theology, he wrote, we can be certain that the cause has already been betrayed and sold out. In fact, by posing the question like this, it, only, it not only reveals why he's been so helpful to me, but it goes to the heart of what his life and work were about. There is something about the central core of his work and mind that has had and continue to have the ironic effect on me of awakening very lively affections in my own personal relationship with God, which he would robustly champion while I have formed doctrinal convictions he wouldn't have held. So there's something about Bonhoeffer. You see, there was something about the way he read and expounded on Scripture that has made my own embrace of biblical inerrancy tighter, not looser. I love the way he speaks of Christ's incarnational reality, which motivates me to really listen to Christ's words, while making me even more skeptical of his descriptions of how we might participate in Christ's atonement. He passionately speaks as Doctrine is essential to truth, which has driven me to cherish more, not less, the historic biblical teachings on how the work of Christ on the cross completely saves sinners. The fundamental doctrines of atonement on which we don't fully agree. Now, there's a price to pay when you pursue the kind of agendas that Bonhoeffer set out for himself in 1930s Germany. One, to awaken the apostate church to the call of Christ. To confront their false doctrines. That was two. And three, to expose the evil in and of Hitler. 
As I read the bio this last year, I found myself weeping at times over the descriptions of how he loved people over and over, including the Nazi doctor, Dr. Sigmund Rascher, who committed unimaginable atrocities in the Jewish concentration camps, who shared a cell with Bonhoeffer for two months prior to the point when they were both hung. I've always wondered what they talked about. There was a tremendous price paid during those years for those who faithfully follow Christ. Resisting pastors, of which he was one, members were imprisoned, tortured, and many were killed. But vast groups of nominal Christians folded and morphed under the Nazi terror tactics. And still, I'm amazed at Bonhoeffer's grace. He said this, A state which includes within itself a terrorized church has lost its most faithful servant. Metaxas writes in his bio, How the German Christians justified twisting and bending the traditionally accepted meaning of the scriptures and doctrines of the church is complicated. There's little question the liberal theological schools help push things along But the other piece of this puzzle has to do with the confusion that comes when the Christian faith becomes too closely related to national identity. After 400 years of taking for granted that all Germans were Christians, no one really knew what Christianity was anymore. Here are some examples of what they did. They got rid of the Old Testament because it was too Jewish. Two. They expunged all the Jewish words from their hymns, Jehovah, Hosanna, and others. Three, there was a massive rally held in 1936 in Berlin where thousands of Christians came and flags flew, Nazi flags flew, emblazoned with one Reich, one people, one church. But on 9-11, it was interesting when I noticed the date, 9-11, 1938, everything ratcheted up for Bonhoeffer. For the prior five years, he had preached openly about the fundamental problems, about the Fuhrer principle, which means the leader. With Hitler, this principle, excuse me, was expanded beyond the idea of following your leader to absolute allegiance to the leader. And on September 11, 1938, a vicious attack was launched across Germany against Jewish businesses, and it became known as the night a broken glass, crystal knocked. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich, walks out of his room. He's so stunned to see what is happening. And he's been meditating in his Bible on Psalm 74. He writes the date in his Bible. And his friend Eberhard Bethke, in his bio, explains his Bonhoeffer state of mind. The levels of confession and resistance could no longer be kept neatly apart. The escalating persecution of the Jews generated an increasing intolerable situation for Bonhoeffer. We now realized mere confession, no matter how courageous, inescapably meant complicity with the murderers. We were resisting by way of confession, but we were not confessing by way of resistance. So when World War II broke out in 1939, rather than fleeing his homeland, which he could have done. He had plenty of opportunities. He had connections. He could have done it. He stayed in Germany. And in 1940, he was drafted. 
as all men his age were, and assigned to the ABWAR, a German intelligence agency. The other one you know well, it's called the SS. But under this cover, he decided to become a courier for the German resistance, and as a double agent became involved in the conspiracy plots to assassinate Hitler. He was also feeding information to his ecumenical contacts abroad about what was happening within the German government and German military. All of these assassination plots failed. The most, code, the most famous was codenamed Valkyrie. There's been a movie made about that near the end of the war. And eventually every conspirator was imprisoned and tortured, and most were shot or hung. Bonhoeffer was arrested in prison in 1941, no, 1943 at the age of 37. The amazing thing is, as I found out and I never knew this, was that he was engaged to be married when he was arrested. He had first, for the first time, met someone and was passionately in love. So he's in prison first at Tegel in Berlin, then at Buchenwald, and then at Flossenburg. On Sunday, April the 8th, 1945, he preached his final prison sermon. He was well known, and people would cry out to him, say, hey, preach to us. Give us a lesson. And he did this at the insistence of his fellow prisoners of one, and one was an atheist. The next day, he was let out at 6 a.m., stripped naked, and hung. And then his body was burned in a pile with the others that were being hung. But it was here again that I found Bonhoeffer helped me so much. He exposed me to death at a young age. He wrote about death. There is a synopsis of his life, a short one in the cost. He openly preached about death. And he thought of death as the last station on the road to freedom. His famous poem, Stations on the Road to Freedom, is now just a huge favorite of mine. I got to share it this last week with the family that gathered for the memorial service. I just want to read the last stanza. Death, come now, thou greatest of feast, on the journey to freedom eternal. Death, cast aside all the burdensome chains and demolish the walls of the temporal body the walls of, the soul, of our souls that are blinded. Do we see everything clearly? No. But he saw freedom in death. So that at last we may see that which remains hidden. Freedom, how long we have sought thee in discipline, action, and suffering. Dying, we may now behold thee revealed in the Lord. What Bonhoeffer did by confronting me with death at 16 was to lead me to confront the reality of eternal life. And in 1970, before I was saved, these thoughts were just swirling around in my mind. I was walking around the Reedley Cemetery. This is the little town I grew up in, California, right next to Dinuba, seven miles apart. We were rivals. <laughs> Fortunately, my wife and I, who's from Dinuba, and I'm from Reedley, are getting along. We were, I was walking around this seminary, this seminary, yeah, cemetery, and we were thinking about picking out a stone for her dad, and we were just kind of looking at different, and, and I found one from my former pastor, Dan Friesen. Now, Dan, this is when I was a kid, 
Dan was this bombastic but beloved preacher in our Mennonite Brethren Church while I was working, growing up, and uh, I found one for him. And he died after I came to Alaska, so I didn't even, I'd never seen it before. And on his gravestone was engraved, and I think he picked this out. Finished! Ready for the resurrection! <laughs> I almost jumped back. The reality of the resurrection is another Christ-given reality. And then after 20 years as a Christian, I began thinking, my God, my earthly life is almost over. I was 40. (laughs) Which plunged me into a 15-year study of heaven. (laughs) Bonhoeffer's work on me was kicking in again as I pondered death at the age of 40. And in that study, one of the results I never expected was that God radically expanded my, expanded my comprehensive understanding of his redemptive work in creation, in us, in everything. This impact has been one of the greatest legacies of Bonhoeffer in my life. And it began as I read The Cost of Discipleship at 16, facing my own eternal death at 2021, 20, and now other sort of fallen body deaths experiences, since then, over the last 40 years, and I've had a few. But when I say the most fundamental reason why Bonhoeffer has been so influential in my life, so awakening to my soul, is that he was anchored in the, as a Christian in the realities of Christ, the incarnation, and his spoken words to us, I run the risk of minimizing some things here, and I want to share some of those other things that spring from this great well. Six more ways that Bonhoeffer has helped me. Has Christ known us or not? Very seldom does a theologian reveal what he believes is the central theme of his life. This was Bonhoeffer's. Does Jesus Christ know us or not? The ultimate reality of my relationship with Christ is not determined by me. It's determined by Christ. We've been practicing our own answers to give to Jesus, but they don't matter, folks. Matthew 26, 31 to 41. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne. He will separate the people one from the other as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The king will say to the sheep on the right, inherit the kingdom prepared to you. To the goats on the left, he says, depart from me. You curse it into the eternal fire prepared for his devil and his angels. Bonhoeffer took my self-saving, legalistic, false Christ-following, fake cheap, grace Christianity, and turned it upside down. It's not my call to judge the existence or the quality of my relationship to him. His word reveals it to me, and I can have complete confidence when I go to his word by his sure word, that he knows me. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. If Christ is the living Lord of my life, my encounter with him, Bonhoeffer says, discloses his word to me, and indeed I have no other means of knowing him but through his plain word and command. To know Christ means to know him by his word as Lord and Savior of my life. And at this point, Bonhoeffer really gets rolling And he challenged me, and he challenges us to actually understand Christ's words. 
It seems at times I can barely understand my own wife of 38 years. She will attest to that. And you know what I found out? My wife not only wants me to hear her, but she wants me to understand her. And then what she wants me to do, based on that understanding, is to act on it appropriately. And if I don't, then things go really wrong. They go bad. So Bonhoeffer raises the level of just hearing Christ to understanding Christ. This is a treasured spiritual insight for me. This has been huge. It's impacted me. Because he moved me beyond my rote and cursory readings of the Bible from the day I was saved. I've never read the Bible the same since I understood this truth. Cursory hearing never works, so why do we think cursory reading works? Christ explains this in Matthew 13 and many other places through parables that the reason he speaks in parables is seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, for this people's heart has grown dull. What he's saying is that understanding Christ's words is directly related to our spiritual heart hunger for God. So Bonhoeffer dumps the question into our laps. What does Jesus mean to say to us? And the first two things Jesus says to us, as it's recorded in Matthew 4, verses 17 and 19, is this. As he began his preaching ministry, we are told this is what he said. One, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And two, to his disciples, or to those who are listening, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I have found that if you're going to follow Christ, that repentance and following are linked together on this earth when we really know Christ. So often in my personal life, as I come to Christ in his word, I am led into repentance. But we must accept the personal cost to follow Jesus. Here Dietrich took dead aim at me at 16. The cost to follow Christ. Jesus calls this our cross. You will find it all through his teachings. And the echoes from Bonhoeffer's challenge have been magnified every year as I read the words of Christ from my Bible. Matthew 8, 34 and 35. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life shall lose it, and whoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. Pastor Jeff preached on the rich man who couldn't walk away from his wealth to follow Christ. Christ says other things in Matthew. If your father or mother or wife or whatever is more important, more preeminent, You can't follow him. Here's a quote. The call to follow Christ implies there's only one way of believing on him, and that is by leaving all and going with the incarnate Son of God. The first step places the disciple in the situation where faith is possible. If he refuses to follow, he stays behind, and he does not learn to follow. What, what Bonhoeffer did, basically, was he took and he put Jesus in front of me and said, listen to him. The abstract idea that we can know Christ 
as an abstract idea is not a reality. Bonhoeffer says, with an abstract idea, it's possible to enter into formal knowledge, to become enthusiastic about it, perhaps even put it into practice, but it can never be followed in a personal obedience. Christianity without the living Christ is Christianity without discipleship. It remains an abstract idea, a myth. Metaxas tells us that as Bonhoeffer walked calmly and naked to the gallows to be hung, he knelt and prayed his last prayer under the gallows. And the attending Nazi doctor, Dr. Fischer Holstrung, observed, In almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so, so submissively to the will of God. This is because Christ was preeminent in Bonhoeffer's life. Janet and I have been doing a lot of flying the last couple of years to care for our parents and to attend important weddings. I think it was four last year, and I was able to do a couple of them. And one of them was my daughter Stephanie's in Florida. It was wonderful. But when you buy that ticket, and it costs you these days, <laughs> you get an abstract plan that you're going to fly somewhere. You print out that piece of paper, all right? You pack, you call for a ride to the airport, you walk out to the plane having endured the TSA. I call that the cross of flying. You board, you sit down, you buckle up. But flying is not a reality yet, is it? And finally, the plane moves, and we're, I always love it when they're pushing away. I'm going, oh, we're going to go. Finally, the plane moves. We're rolling down the runway, and I have to admit that just about every time I have this thought, especially if I've gotten on and I haven't seen the pilot, I hope there's a pilot up there because I think we're really going to fly. You're rolling down the runway at 150 miles an hour. I hope there's a pilot. At this point, we all need to understand something. The pilot's preeminent for the rest of the flight, and especially as we land, he's more important to me than my wife next to me. I love her nonetheless. I do, hon. <laughs> but the truth is, he is now my greatest love. I think this is why some pilots act like gods, because they know without them we're all dead. Without Christ, you are dead. Colossians 1.18, we read it earlier. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ is preeminent, the head, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and only he can give you eternal life. Only the man who has a right to say he is justified by grace alone, Dietrich says, is the man who has left all to follow Christ. Such a man knows that a call to discipleship from Christ is a gift of grace and that the call is inseparable from the grace. Eighteen months ago, on January the 5th, I helped lead a guy by the name of Jack Parisi to the Lord. He's in his 30s. He's a military officer in Seattle. And he was up visiting us. And we spent several hours talking about the realities of Christ as we looked at God's Word. I led him through everything from Genesis to Revelation. Because sometimes we need that. We need to understand the scope of what Christ has done. 
He listened and heard God's words to him. He did not grow in a Christian home. He had no Christian training, absolutely none. And on that day, he followed Christ by faith into a relationship with Jesus. I was in tears. He was in tears. And I love talking about Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't have a real relationship with him, you've been faking it, don't be ashamed. Rather, we are deluded by our sin. I would love to talk to you. Or if today doesn't work, you can take and uh, we'll make an appointment this week. Last November, Jack married my daughter, Stephanie. She's now stationed at Camp Ramadi in Iraq. She let us know this last week it was 122 degrees. So Jack and Stephanie are separated for a year. We're praying for this new believer, for their marriage. But I was so encouraged because I've had both an email and a personal discipleship relationship with Jack. Jack's dad died when he was a teen. His mom died just this last year. Neither of them knew the Lord. He came to know the Lord before his mom died. It just ripped his heart up to know because he knew the truth he would never see him again. Just agonizing. Jack sent me an email this last week. And he said this. And because he doesn't have parents anymore, he's come to calling me and Janet, dad and mom. He said, hey, dad, just want to check in with you. I was questioned for the first time since I accepted Jesus about my beliefs. I got some strange looks. I just wanted to let you know I'm glad I chose honestly with the Lord versus the easy way out. Let's pray. Father God, in many ways, you do not make it easy for us. Because by your grace, you confront us with our comfortable delusions that come from our own sins. Yet it is your grace to open our eyes to the truth in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I am so amazed that you did that for me. And you can do it for anyone. Today, as we leave... For those of us who know you, I pray we would be more passionate and motivated to keep hearing you and understanding and following better and better, and just to become more mature. And then, Lord, I would pray that you would give us patience and love and grace to get involved with those who are seeking you, who don't know you yet. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Stick around. Enjoy some food, perhaps tell a fish story. I don't have any yet. Enjoy your week. And you have a son that's in Afghanistan. But he's flying in. Yeah. Yeah. In and out. Yeah. He probably is there right now. Oh.